0: evening and welcome to this forum for philosophy panel discussion. This event is co-sponsored by the British Society for the History of Philosophy, so a big thank you to them. Tonight's event is part of our Histories of Thinking series and tonight our topic is logic. Logic is one of the cornerstone philosophical disciplines. It was the favourite business of some of the subject's most revered historical thinkers. It is also probably the philosophy exam that brings most dread to our first-year undergraduates. Logic is the home of fairly abstract ideas like entailment, rigour, soundness and validity, and many a happy blackboard has been decorated with its formal notation. Increasingly, it is also a subject of the so-called culture wars, where it is often invoked as a slogan for a certain kind of approach to political issues. Our panel tonight comprises historians and logicians who will help us take a look at logic's interesting history, stretching from Aristotle through medieval thought and right up to its role in contemporary philosophical and political discourse. Our panellists are Sarah Uckelman, Assistant Professor at Durham University, Justin Blassitz, Assistant Professor at Tubingen University, and Audrey App, Associate Professor at the University of Victoria. And I'm Claire Moriarty from the Forum and Trinity College Dublin. We we'll begin with our panellists, and I'll leave 20 minutes or so at the end to ask some of the questions we receive on Zoom and Facebook Live. But I'd love to hear what everyone thinks on this subject. So what is logic? how do you explain what it is to newcomer students, for example, or to, you know, friends who want to know what you do for work?
1: Thank you, Claire, for the introduction and for the question. Um, so mostly friends and family don't really want to know anything about what logic is, um, <laughs> which is fair, fair enough. Um, I think I knew what I was getting into when I took the job. Um, but so I will often teach our introductory and our intermediate logic classes. And so I think often what I'll try to tell students, like what I'll try to most get across to them is that it's basically a formal tool. And so it's this formal tool it's a whole it's a system of a whole bunch of symbols and a whole bunch of different kinds of rules and we'll often use it for um, representing arguments that we might make so representing claims that we might make claims that we might want to justify and you know and that's it And we can have a bunch of different kinds of systems, depending on the exact nature of the claims that we want to make. And so logic isn't necessarily just one tool. There's actually just a whole bunch of tools that we have under this big umbrella term of logic. So I think I kind of often try to start off just getting students at least to understand, um, like family never gets that far into the conversation, but students at least like they have to be there. So at least to, for, you know, to give them a sense that there's actually a lot of things that fall under the umbrella of logic. And so if they just hear, oh, this is just logic, then that's, that's kind of a problem, I think, at least for me. So yeah,
0: that's usually how I'll introduce it to people anyway. Sarah, Justin, anything to add like about how you, how you start that conversation?
2: So I also, you know, when teaching my uh, kind of introductory logic students, I start off with the question, what is logic? And I do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, lots of people have heard about it, but they've never studied it. And so it's like, what are the things associated with logic? What is the folk idea? that they have come across. And so they tell me things about deductive validity and entailment and inference and all of these buzzwords that they've heard, even if they don't necessarily know what any of them mean. But I always want to get them to take a bigger picture, look at things. And my answer to the question, what is logic is very similar to Audrey's. So I try to motivate to them the understanding of logic as merely the study of good arguments. So we have arguments. There are good ones and bad ones. And can we identify systematic features of the ones that are good? Now, a lot of times, our study of good argumentation leads us to a very particular and narrow view of good logic, of good argument. And one of the things I always try to do in my introductory class, at least is kind of lead students around so that by the end of the year, right about now, we come back to the question of what is good logic, what is good argumentation, and look at differing competing accounts of what this goodness can be. Deductive validity, whatever that ends up being in technical terms, is all fine and good. But it's not the only way that you can have a good argument.
0: Yeah, we'd be in trouble probably if we could only do deductions.
2: It's like the vast majority of ar- That you will come across out in the wild are not deductively valid. Learning about deductive validity or this very rarefied view of good argumentation isn't going to help us out in the wild. And we can still discriminate between having a good argument for something versus a bad argument. And if, it's, if both of these arguments are not deductively valid, well, then there's got to be something more going on. Justin, have I, you anything to add to these kind of intros?
3: I very much appreciate the kind of approach that Sarah and Audrey take and the sort of pluralistic idea that's behind it. One with the way that I want to kind of contrast that kind of approach is with a more historically based approach, the kind that you find in ancient texts that talk about logic. And in the very root of the word logic, so logic is logike in ancient Greek, and that's the study of logos. And logos is one of these very difficult words that could mean something like argument, like the a, a kind of thing that Audrey and Sarah were talking about. But it could also just mean something more general like reason. And so one very common way of understanding logic in antiquity, which I think is a, another way of getting this idea across to students, is the study of good reasoning. And then the question is, what makes good reasoning? What makes bad reasoning? And that puts a different angle on it. It's less formal, maybe, more about extending your knowledge, more about convincing people. And that's a sort of different way of thinking about logic that, for example, in ancient Greece and Rome was much more common.
0: Speaking of which, I was going to move to you next just to ask you a little bit about logic in the ancient world. I mean, so you're an Aristotle expert. Can I ask you to do the absolutely impossible and summarize some of Aristotle's contributions to logic?
3: Aristotle is the first person that a modern logician reading ancient Greek or Roman philosophy would smell and say, that is logic. That looks like logic. What he's doing feels like what a logician is doing. He uses letters. Schematic letters to represent variables and represent a whole range of arguments and say all of these have a certain property. And he's most known for the syllogism, which is a deductively valid argument, a kind of argument with premises and a conclusion, where when the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. I'll give you a couple examples. All humans are mortal. All, I don't know, baseball players are humans, therefore all baseball players are mortal. Um, That's a very American example, I realize. Uh, Cricket players, if you will. And he studied uh, arguments of that form under the guise of all A is B, all B is C, therefore all A is C. And he studied all the various combinations using words like all, none, some, not all, but also using modalities, so possibly, necessarily. That's the sort of main contribution to logic that is recognized today by logicians as logic.
0: Does it occupy a kind of central place in his system? So when he talks about philosophy in general, is logic spliced through everything or is it its own discrete little world?
3: That's a really great question. And it's sort of a a difficult question to answer because um, he doesn't usually refer to the formal apparatus in any of his other extant works. Partially, it may be because some of the developments are later and so that they're not reflected in earlier works. But certain kind of very fundamental aspects of his logical thinking, and if you understand his logical thinking more broadly, to include his theory of science, which he certainly did, then all of his works are shot through the terminology and ideas from his theory of science about demonstration, demonstrative argument, and things like that. But less he doesn't, you know, in his metaphysics, try to put everything into syllogisms, later commentators on Aristotle would in fact do this, but it's not a game that Aristotle was particularly interested in playing.
0: To what extent do you think it holds up then? Obviously, this was so long ago. The way we do lots of things has changed a lot. To what extent does, or Aristotle said back then, still help us think clearly, still help us do reasoning?
3: I think that one thing that's very nice about Aristotle's system, and is still used actually by contemporary, for example, computer scientists, is that it's very simple. His syntax, the sort of structure of the kind of proposition that he's using, is finite, not recursive which means that it's just a very specified kind of form. And that really helps you to kind of narrow down and use reasoning in a very simple way. Whereas the apparatus of contemporary logic has various computational features, for example, that make it not computationally tractable in general in many situations. So people are still interested in it. On the other hand, I think the modern logician reading Aristotle for logic isn't going to probably learn very much. Just like modern mathematician reading, Euclid isn't going to learn very much about the technical bits, but they might learn, well, what was this for? Why did we care about this? Those sorts of questions, the sort of more philosophical questions, that I think they could learn a lot from reading Aristotle.
1: The one place where you do see contemporary logicians that often cite Aristotle is in logicians who work on um, things like logic of time, what are Mm. often called non-classical logics. It seems like almost every introductory treatment on like, well, how do we treat logic and time? So how do we treat a logical system that deals with time goes back to Aristotle talking about the sentence, there will be a sea battle tomorrow. And like, that's all over the place in all these different logics of time. So there probably won't be a sea battle tomorrow in anywhere that's salient to me, like fingers crossed, but you know, like, it's gonna rain tomorrow or something. Is that sentence true or false? Like when I speak that sentence right now, it's gonna rain tomorrow. Like, is that true or false? And it turns out that that, you know, which people trace back to Aristotle, writing about sea battles is actually one of the things that is often the starting point for like, even contemporary treatments of people who talk about logics of time. So I think that's one place where people actually do explicitly talk about the Aristotle. But I think for the most part, you're totally right, Justin. Like I don't know that people are necessarily reading it for the technical details, but that's one place where the motivation seems to still have
0: stuck. So we're also interested in kind of cultures of logic. So in the ancient world, do you get a sense from reading Aristotle and other figures who they think should be learning logic, what the sort of practical purposes are mooted as?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's actually a a super interesting question. Um, I think the most interesting person to think about in that regard is Galen. Galen lived in the second century or so AD. He was the the most famous doctor of antiquity. He was the court doctor of Marcus Aurelius. And he was also very philosophically astute. He wrote commentaries on Plato. He wrote things against other people. And one of the things that he really thought was extremely important for doctors uh, is training in logic. And in many of his texts, He just gets really angry at people for making all these stupid mistakes. And he says, if you knew any logic, you would never have had this crazy medical theory. And so in in antiquity, it really was taken to be a very central aspect of education, not just in philosophy, but also in things like medicine. And in even later periods, it became part of a standardized curriculum that would begin in logic, logic kind of broadly conceived Sarah probably can tell us more about that in the Latin Middle Ages, for example.
2: And this is something that I find particularly interesting, is looking at where you can find logic, both the teaching of logic, the learning of logic, and the practice of logic. So, as Justin was saying, by the time that you hit the high Middle Ages, so the 13th century and onwards, this is when you see universities as we understand them nowadays, first becoming founded. And so you've got these clusters of intellectuals who are banding together to teach students in a sort of public, sort of private matter. You might have like public lectures or public disputations. And over the course of the 13th century, the universities across Europe all kind of zeroed in onto the same foundational curriculum that university students would take as this is what you did in your bachelor's degree. You would study Latin grammar, you would study Latin rhetoric and you would study logic, or as they sometimes called it, dialectic. And this was kind of very rooted in Aristotle, but also they were reading Cicero and other people like that, and a lot of the ancient Roman grammarians for the grammar side of things. And it's really interesting because what you see in like the 13th and 14th centuries, this formal codification of logic as this fundamental foundational tool that every educated person would learn. But if we're interested in kind of cultures of logic and who gets to learn it, well, who gets to go to university in the 13th and 14th centuries? It's going to be rich men. And it's particularly interesting because prior to the birth of the universities, you actually have in more individualized and more personal and more private settings of education, more evidence of women learning logic than you do in the later period. So if you are looking around the time of Charlemagne and the Carolingian Empire and Otto the Great and all of these historical figures who are famed for intellectual renaissances, these are when people are reading translations of Aristotle into Latin and writing commentaries on them and understanding these things. And this point in history, we don't really have a lot of documents we don't you know we don't have people sitting down and writing all oh, this is my school curriculum at my monastery school but you do have a sense that women who were in nunneries were as equally educated as men in the monasteries and it's only when you start getting this kind of secular educational context that logic starts becoming this purview of academia rather than of the religious education more broadly and I just want to give an anecdote about the study of logic in this period. You, know, you may have heard of one of the most famous logicians in the Middle Ages, Peter Abelard. You may have heard him not for his logic, but for his torrid affair with his student Eloise. And they had a child and then got married. And eventually they called it off and he went off to become a monk and she went off to become an abbess. And they wrote many letters to each other later in their life. And you might think Eloise is this wonderfully educated woman. She was studying with one of the most important figures, kind of academic figures in her time. This is not an exaggeration. And you know, Abelard was widely regarded in the 12th century as one of the most learned people there. And we have loads of evidence that Eloise learned grammar and rhetoric. So two of these three foundational studies. And the evidence of her learning logic she was studying with the best logician in the 12th century, is actually much, much slimmer. And what you start seeing is this account of logic as a public sort of activity. Logic is reasoning, it's argumentation, it is, involves multiple people. It's something that you do with somebody else. And this is something that is emphasized in logic throughout the Middle Ages. It's this disputational or dialectical context. And as soon as you turn it into this public activity, then it's no longer appropriate for women to be doing. And so women can study grammar at home. They can study rhetoric. It's good for them to be able to read the Bible and to be able to you know, write beautiful letters or to maybe write treatises to educate their children when their children are young. But why would they need to learn logic this is something that men do out in the public sphere. This is so interesting
1: because then it flips back again, right? When you get to more contemporary logic and it becomes more a study of things that you can codify in formal systems, then you get, I mean, not a lot because they're still not thoroughly accepted in universities, but you get more women who are in fields like mathematics and logic because it's something they can study in private because it's something that they don't really have to be out in public doing. They can be reading the books. They can be doing those things in the relatively private sphere. I know, I kind of love how that history goes. I mean, I don't love it, but it's a super interesting history how gendered participation in logic, I mean, and I think mathematics just kind of flips as the fields are private or are public. So, yeah. I think
2: it's important that it's this shift between this dialogical understanding of logic as this multi agent, you know, many person activity shifting into something that you can do, studying on your own. And this is something that we see happening around about the 15th, 16th centuries. You get this backlash against these medieval developments. Essentially, logic had become these argumentation games, these things that you would try to do with your opponent to try to trick them into making a mistake. And so there was this real kind of backlash against this. And you get this return to... Oh, it's not even a return to. It's a move towards this more private, single person understanding. And I think you're absolutely right that it took a couple of centuries, but it opened the door for this to then become the sort of thing that women were allowed to do and were allowed to partake in. And you start by the 17th century, you start seeing women who clearly have been trained in Aristotelian syllogistics and things like that. I suppose it makes sense to think of
0: an applied speculative distinction as well, where, you know, if logic is being treated as something that's for the public good, if people are trained in it in a kind of general sense versus this kind of esoteric, highly speculative thing that you do on your own, theoretically, you can see how attitudes might shift as to who should be doing it and how many people get trained in it. I suppose with philosophy in the Middle Ages, one of the real cliches, at least I feel, is that they were all obsessed with logic. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about some of the specific problems people are interested in or how medieval philosophers use logic to inform the kind of work they do?
2: I think that the logic that they were doing in the Middle Ages is in many respects some of the most intriguing and exciting logic that you can find in history. So on the one hand, what the Middle Ages, the intellectual culture that they were inheriting was very much Aristotelian. So thank goodness for Boethius in the fifth century, his goal was to translate all of Aristotle from Greek into Latin. He only got part of the way into it. And after he died, some of his translations were lost and inaccessible for a while. But the core bits of Aristotle's logical works that he translated, formed the foundation of what Western philosophy was. And because Boethius translated first and foremost the logical works, that's why logic became so central to European understanding of what intellectual life was about. So on the one hand, you get a very strong inheritance of Aristotle. They were studying the syllogisms, not just to rehash what Aristotle had to say, but to expand on it. So it's widely agreed that Aristotle's attempt to put modality, possibility and necessity into the syllogism either didn't work as well as he wanted or we don't quite understand his system if it does in fact work. And so there was a lot of work in the middle ages of trying to rehabilitate this, to create a system of the syllogistic that captured as much of Aristotle as it could, but still made sense of notions of necessity and possibility. And you'll find across all sorts of logic textbooks, whether they're about syllogisms or not, references to the philosopher. If a medieval person mentions the philosopher, they mean Aristotle. And it's just expected that everybody knows this. So if you say, as philosopher says in book two, you know, you can tell from context book two of what. But this is just to show how central Aristotle was to the understanding of logic in kind of the European Middle Ages. But then there's this other path of logic, which was very much informed by ideas and grammar. So questions about how words mean what they mean and how do they mean things in isolation? So just on their own or in conjunction with other things. And so you get not the first because the Stoics also did some of this, but developments of essentially a systematic analysis of what we can call the logical constants So the bit of language that functions the same across all the contexts. So things like conjunction, putting two sentences together with and or disjunction with or conditional statements. If this, then that. And all of the ways in which you can combine these things together with or without negation, with or without modality, with or without talking about like all things or some things and developing a systematic account of good reasoning practices. And with this kind of tied in with this idea that logic is intended to be a multifaceted, multi-person sort of activity, you get really interesting, logical, I don't want to call them games because that kind of trivializes them, but logical disputational methods where You really get genuine moves beyond Aristotle, genuine developments using these new techniques that would not have been possible to do just using the syllogistic. So they start looking at paradoxes. So how do we analyze sentences like what this sentence says is false? How do we deal with, again, the questions about the openness of the future? How do we reconcile the idea that we are genuinely able to determine what we will do tomorrow, you know, the question, will I go outside tomorrow? Yes, no. If you think that this is a genuinely open question, then you have to deal with problems like, well, God knows everything. Doesn't he know what you're going to do tomorrow before you even do it? So questions of how to reconcile problems of theology with problems of just philosophy generally, all of these provided very fruitful places for really, really innovative developments in logic
0: so far from the idea that it's just expanding on aristotle but pushing that kind of framework into temporality modality what god's got to do with it Uh, it's fascinating (laughs) and so audrey not to ask you to cover all the space in between because there's plenty of distance between now and the middle ages but can you talk a little bit about some of the characteristic elements of more recent logic or the logic we're teaching today for example
1: we do, t- we do kind of get this picture, I think, in contemporary philosophy departments that you are like, well, there were syllogisms with Aristotle. And then like the medievals did some stuff, but it was still pretty much Aristotle. And then like, boom, you know, now we have modern logic. I mean, depending on where you are, right? It's like, and then Frege. And then now you have to do these natural deduction system things and like build some truth tables. And yeah, we don't really have a really clear sense of uh, what happened in between Um, I am not a huge expert on a lot of the middle periods, but like definitely one of the things that you get kind of in those late 19th, early 20th century is I don't think you get as clear a separation between logic and math as I think now we sometimes take there to be. And it sounds like that there has previously been like a kind of really clear sense that there are separate disciplines. Because I think a lot of the formal tools that logicians are getting, they're getting from math. And then I think there's also certain kinds of disciplines where there's actually some open debates So things like set theory, which in simple terms, you might say, well, set theory is just talking about groups of stuff, but really what it deals with is like, how do you talk about infinity? How do you talk about the idea that there's infinitely many numbers? Even worse, how do you sort out the idea that You can say there's infinitely many of these kinds of numbers and there's infinitely many of those other kinds of numbers, but actually there's even more infinitely many of some kinds of numbers than other kinds of numbers. And Like, this is just like, this is weird. We were not in secular university context. You might think this is basically just theology, but it's not. So all these things are happening and it's not really clear. Like what's math, what's logic? It doesn't seem especially like people are really concerned, but for um, distinguishing which one's which. So the mathematicians are contributing to the foundations of logic, the logicians are contributing to the foundations of mathematics. There's not as much, I think, of a sense of disciplinary separation at that particular time. But definitely what people are doing is they're making things more formal. And so more formal just means more in terms of things like systems of axioms, which are just things that you write down as the basic kinds of principles that you might use. And it basically just looks much more like we think that math looks. So it looks less, I think, like people arguing with each other in the public square, trying to take down each other's arguments. I mean, I think that seems to still be kind of where we are in lots of philosophy anyway. But then the logic part tends to be a little bit less like that. And it tends to be focused more on, okay, so we have these formal systems in math, we've got these formal systems in logic. You know, we might think of them differently in philosophical terms, like what's going on, but the kinds of methods that you're going to use, the things that you're actually doing. I mean, if you're not a kind of insider to a lot of these things, they're going to look like you're basically doing the same thing. If you teach, I think if you teach logic at a university, and especially if you teach it above the introductory level, the math majors and the computer science majors are going to show up because it just kind of seems like you're doing the same stuff as they're learning in their other classes. I mean I think that's that's a lot of what it looks like at this point. Also one disconnect I think between the maybe the popular image of logic like what we think of as logic and what logicians seem to be up to when they're actually writing and presenting logic papers and even teaching classes is that it's a lot more pluralistic than I think people give it credit for. Like there's this big popular image of logic that just is like well you just plug in the I don't know something and then like logic tells you what you should now believe and you're like, well, which logic? What, Which logical system do you want to use? What are your premises? What are your rules of inference? You know, most logic, as it's basically practice, is like, well, which system? It's not really concerned with getting the real truth out of the world as like, what are some systems for representing different things that we might do? Maybe with reasoning, maybe with human reasoning, maybe with expert systems reasoning, something else like that might be fine too. And it's just, yeah, it's just much less homogeneous than i think the popular image would have us believe
0: and um, just moving on from what audrey said or sorry taking it up i was wondering if either justin or sarah you'd like to reflect on some of the things she said either about the relationship between mathematics and logic i mean it seems like those two are a lot closer together now than they ever were and maybe a little bit about pluralism
3: on the on the mathematics bit i think that one of the most interesting things about ancient greek logic is that it has basically no influence on ancient Greek mathematics. And that's actually very surprising because if you look at the Greek text from a modern perspective, you you immediately get the impression that there should be, that there's logic behind this in the, in like Aristotle or something, but there are not in syllogisms. There's even clear from the, our point of view, logical gaps in, for example, Euclid's argumentation. On the other hand, Aristotle does clearly talk about and have in mind geometrical proofs very frequently when he talks about deductive arguments, especially scientific deductive arguments, which he calls demonstrations. And he criticizes geometers, for example, for leaving out certain propositions, which he thinks are necessary to make it deductively valid. So there is this interest, but they're very clearly distinct texts, like you would never confuse a logical text for a mathematical text, unlike the contemporary thing that's published in the review of Symbolic Logic or something like that, or the Boldness of Symbolic Logic, where if you don't know, you could just look at that and see math. And then on the pluralism thing, I think that Audrey is totally right about the contemporary way that people approach logic. And it is completely the opposite of the ancient approach. And just to give one example, there are two dominant approaches to logic in antiquity, one from Aristotle which Sarah has been talking about, I mentioned earlier, which deals with these syllogisms of the form all A is B, all B is C, therefore all A is C. But then there's also the Stoics, who came a little bit later than Aristotle. And they also have something called syllogisms, um, but their syllogisms have to do with words like if and or or not and and. So what we would think of as propositional logic. And I think that if you come at this from a modern logician's point of view, you're like, yeah, there's a few systems, they do different, you know, whatever, they're fine put them together, leave them separate, whatever you want. But for the Stoics and the Aristotelians in antiquity, there was a conflict between them. You had to choose. You couldn't be the plural. You you had to say, well, one of them is the real syllogisms. The other ones are somehow derivative or not syllogisms at all. And that's what the people said. They didn't, for the most part, think that there was an eclectic or pluralistic option available. I, I think that that really says something about how they were approaching logic as this sort of, no, we want to know what the truth is, and logic is our tool for that. And so we have to choose. You, you don't get to be the same kind of pluralist if you take logic to have this kind of role. Whereas if you think of it as a formal system, well, let a thousand flowers bloom, it doesn't really matter. And so that really connects these issues of formalism and the kind of mathematization of logic that happens in the 19th and 20th centuries with this sort of pluralistic approach that you can see in, in modern logic.
2: Yeah, I want to bring in something that we haven't really touched on at all, because I think it it has to do with this question of, is there one logic? Are there many logics? What are the sorts of approaches we should be taking, teaching and learning and doing logic nowadays? And everything that we've been talking about so far has been dreadfully Western-centric. It's Aristotle and the reception of Aristotle, and this is what Aristotle did. He was the father of logic, and then you got the Stoics responding to him, and you've got the medievals building on him, and you've got even the modern tradition of Frege and Russell, they're all developing out of this one tradition. But Western Europe doesn't have the monopoly on things that can be called logic. And this goes back to the question of what is logic? What are we going to count as logic? And one thing that we've seen in charting this historical development in the West is that you get to the 21st century and you've got these proliferation of different formal systems. You can have a paraconsistent system or a relevant system or an intuitionistic system or whatever. But fundamentally, all of these systems are all kind of trying to do the same thing, just maybe in different ways. But it's really interesting to take a look elsewhere and see, well, what has counted as logic or as systematized reasoning in other contexts? One of the things that I make a point of teaching my intro logic students every year is that if we look elsewhere for accounts of what gets to count as good reasoning or good argumentation, you can find extremely rich developments in, among other places, Indian Hinduism and Buddhism. So roughly at the same time that Aristotle and the Greeks were developing their syllogistics, Over in India, they were codifying a type of reasoning, a type of argumentation pattern called Anumana. And so you've got syllogisms on the Greek and you've got something else over in the Sanskrit. And there we have interesting and very distinctive account of what is logic. Logic is not necessarily so much about this pursuit of truth or deriving necessary consequences from your premises, but rather giving arguments that provide you with a foundation for taking certain claims as justified or supported. So it's a type of defeasible reasoning, in that new information could come along and you could have to withdraw some of the conclusions that you had. But you would still be able to say, okay, maybe this conclusion that I drew, turned out to be wrong, but I was still justified in drawing it because I had an argument that met all of these characteristics of being a good argument. It gave me evidence for a particular thing. So understanding the role that logic has both in academic study and in broader culture, it's important that we recognize that what we might normally think of as logic with this deductive validity and everything doesn't tell the whole story that there's more to logic than just what we see in the West.
3: Can I just jump in on that? I totally agree with what Sarah is saying. And I just wanted to add, though, that on the other hand, deductive validity isn't the special property of people writing in Latin or ancient Greek um, or people who read the people who are writing in Latin and ancient Greek. So Sarah was talking about how Aristotle in the Latin West is called the philosopher. Well, the commentator is Ibn Wucht, Averroes, who is from Andalusia and uh, Muslim. And in fact, in the Muslim world, you see starting in eighth, ninth century already and continuing for centuries later, the development of very very rich logical systems that are indebted to aristotle but also building off it in crazy new ways in ways that sort of aristotle would never have imagined and for example um ibn Sina who's uh, Avicenna in the in latin you, you see extremely powerful systems being developed of syllogistic that some have argued are just as strong as first order logic so just as strong as the logic that you teach in first-year undergraduates today much, much stronger than what Aristotle is talking about, you already see those developments in the Islamic world. And it's not only that by looking at other cultures, see alternatives to deductive validity or something like that, but also you think they're talking about syllogisms, but they're doing completely new things with it. And we're also extremely influential in the Latin West's self-understanding.
0: It's really important, I think, in the same way that the word philosophy can tend to be hijacked by a certain species of thinking about what it could possibly refer to, only a certain kind of trajectory of Western thought. It's interesting to think that logic has the same issue that, you know, because certain curricula have arose over time or certain sort of historical famous people are associated with it. You get this one view of what logic is or where it's been done or who does it. That is probably damaging to our general logical and critical thinking pursuits if we stick within that realm. So it's, it's nice to be thinking more about other logical systems that haven't got to have the name logic for no good reasons uh, until more recently. And it's
1: also not necessarily great for people being able to see themselves as logicians either, right? I mean, because like, as you mentioned, um, this is sort of a general problem in philosophy that I think a lot of contemporary philosophical traditions in Western Europe, North America, like are really reluctant, I think, to recognize philosophy that has arisen on different intellectual trajectories as genuinely being philosophy, right? I mean, you often find Chinese philosophy being classified as as like, basically, that's just religious studies. It's amazing, given
0: the history of Western philosophy.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, People don't even necessarily recognize that there's such a thing as African philosophy or indigenous philosophy. They don't even necessarily acknowledge that there's been all these rich intellectual traditions elsewhere. So, I mean, this is definitely a problem that's all over, I think, philosophy in general. And I think that, you know, in some ways does kind of influence. Do you get, do you really get to see yourself as the kind of person who can do this kind of thing? which i think is also another feature of of the history of logic that we've gone around and talked about a little bit which is that it's a pretty homogenous image of who actually is our who's our image of a famous successful logician and it's like almost always the same guy who
0: do you think it is i mean kripke for me is the archetype
1: aristotle Frege, russell kripke I think of Gödel who's not necessarily like super aspirational as a figure in general but in contemporary logic there's a cluster of figures that you might think of and then right Aristotle but, you know, I think that there are plenty of other people who obviously have been contributing to logic that don't necessarily get as much play, for example. Like, Frege wasn't necessarily the first person to come up with this sense reference distinction. Like, there's some evidence that Constance Jones had basically that distinction already before Frege. But in that particular intellectual climate, it wasn't really clear that a woman philosopher was going to be treated as an, intellect- an intellectual giant in the same way that people like Russell were willing to acknowledge Frege as having contributed something really important to philosophy. So we do in some ways end up with a kind of self-reinforcing system, right? Certain kinds of people are really recognizable as logicians in our history of philosophy. But I think that that, that's self-reinforcing, right? Because then You pay more attention to work that's done by people who fit that particular kind of image, and then you cite them more. And so they become more important and it keeps cycling through. And the extent to which they had good insights that we can benefit from ends up being, you know, maybe important, but certainly not the only factor that determines how much attention we pay to them.
0: That's such an important point that whether you can be taken seriously as a logician and massively determine whether what your output is can possibly be determined logic. You know, this idea that a person can't really be heard as doing logic unless they seem like a credible magician. So I'm wondering kind of more in general about these kind of issues in logic that relate to identity and not the equivalence relation. We've talked a little bit about how it's come closer to mathematics. It's a much more formalized discipline than it, than it once was. Do you see any of the kind of issues of stereotype threat that we get in mathematics being active in logic now?
1: So yes, in some ways, no in other ways. So I definitely felt super conscious of my gender in graduate school because there were really no other, almost no other women who were doing logic, no one we were really reading, almost no women who were visible researchers. So I felt really self-conscious along those lines. But then again, actually gender and race and all 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 kinds of ways in which people who look like me are often just unconsciously, at least often taken less seriously as philosophers. It's actually part of the reason why I decided to um, specialize in being a logic teacher. It's because at the very least, given the way that logic is done in this kind of like contemporary symbolic way, um, I could just be right. Like there were a whole bunch of issues of credibility that I think I felt like I had to navigate in whatever, quote unquote, regular philosophy, like I had to kind of present my point in certain ways to be heard as authoritative. There were only so many times I could say the words, I feel as though, or I think as though, before people would just stop listening to me, because obviously I just wasn't sure. But then when I was doing logic, it was fine, I could just give the proof. So there were actually some ways in which the kind of modern symbolic logic was friendlier to a lot of the worries that I had, because like, there were, some of those things could just be done. But then. Actually getting to learn that in the first place, be able to see myself as somebody who could genuinely do that and be good at it that I think ended up being kind of a different story I mean I got people who were like oh you're a you're a woman doing logic like can you do that which sounds icky and gross but like it's totally been said to me like oh is that that's something like girls can do I have women logic students now who basically say yeah thanks for being a woman teaching me logic because I've been told by my family or whatever that girls are just aren't as good as this kind of thing so it's obviously still a live thing that um, people are being told unfortunately I think those of us
0: in philosophy will find it very easy to believe those are experiences you, you've had i definitely remember being asked at a philosophy of maths conference who i was here with which is you know not
2: usual from my own experience this experience of logic and identity and who gets to count as a logician and stuff and you know i've had experiences like audrey when i first or second logic class that i taught at the end of the uh, semester a very pompous young man came up to me and basically said I was surprised that you ended up being as decent of a teacher as you were considering that you were a girl. And it's like, well, gee, thanks. But I think in addition to the things that Audrey was saying, a lot more openness and a lot more acceptance nowadays of women doing logic amongst logicians than there is amongst philosophers. And something that you often find in certain philosophical circles is this backlash against logic against this idea of this monolithic tool that derives timeless truths that are objectively true or false. And other people, other women in philosophy it may have experienced this sort of thing, but I have been in contexts where women in philosophy have gotten together to talk about what women in philosophy do, who they are, what they study, what they teach, and all of these things. And the sort of things that I hear people say about what women in philosophy do. They have all been, you know, like logic, the rational, the cerebral, the mind, that's the male. Then we've got the women, they are the body, they are the emotion, they are the intuitions. And it's a very strange sort of tension because you hear enough people say these sorts of things and you have to come to the conclusion that either If what women in philosophy do is all of this body, emotion, intuition sort of things, then either I'm not doing philosophy or I'm not a woman. I mean, this is the, the correct logical inference to make. And so it is interesting that these questions of identity and who gets to be a logician, logicians are in some respects a lot happier to have women logicians around than sometimes philosophers can be. I have
1: views about this. (laughs) Um, This is probably not surprising um, because I think, Sarah, you and I have definitely talked about this before. So, I mean, I teach logic regularly. I've worked in logic. I've worked in philosophy of math. Right now, if you were to ask me what I do in philosophy, I'm a feminist philosopher. That's kind of clearly, I think, what I do as a researcher in philosophy so just that's I think mostly by way of background just to have a sense of where I'm coming at and I think it's really funny because I think that like absolutely that kind of perceived tension between um, say doing feminist philosophy so doing philosophy that's attentive to things like embodied experience gendered experience To particularity, right? I think that's one thing that feminist philosophers are often, often try to be attentive to is the particularity of different kinds of people's experience, which isn't necessarily reflected in certain kinds of universalizing tendencies that we have in philosophy generally. So I mean, there's lots of things that feminist philosophers do, but that's at least one of them. So you definitely kind of find this tension between people are like, but how can you be a feminist philosopher and interested in logic? And is it just totally different? And I think sometimes I think what I actually have noticed is that my subject matter has changed, but it's not really clear that my methods have changed as much as you would think that they have. So I'm gonna tell a story too. So this was actually a fun class that I got to teach in the fall. So I taught non-classical logics, which are basically logics that look at our ordinary system of logic, like the one that I think most people have to learn In their introductory classes, you learn a system of doing proofs, you learn truth tables, um, you learn things like that. And so non-classical logics are basically things that do either more than that, or that change some of that. So logics of necessity and possibility get counted as non-classical, but same with logics that actually have, say, more than two truth values. So like true, false, and neither, or true, false, and both, or four of them, or things like that, right? The way that we managed to teach that class, the fun of Zoom teaching was actually, I got to co-teach it with my colleague at Calgary, Richard Zach. So we kind of co-taught non-classical logics together. We taught all of it through complaining about classical logic. So we taught all of it basically through this method of saying, look, here's a system that we've got. And it turns out this system works really well for some things and really poorly for some other things. Here's one way that the system works really poorly here's one solution that we might have to fix this way that it works really poorly. And that would be a system of non-classical logic. So it'd be like, oh, it turns out that classical logics are really bad for dealing with things like sea battles tomorrow. Here's a system that might do better. But like, I feel like a lot of what I do as a feminist philosopher too. It's just a different system. As a feminist philosopher, I get to be really stressed out about patriarchy and racism and colonialism and think about how those systems work badly and what might be some ways to change those systems or criticize those systems. Um, Those systems obviously work really well for some people, but not for everyone. So what are some ways that those systems could change? And exactly that same way that I would want to think about How does classical logic not work in every situation? What are some things we could do to criticize it? I feel like that's still how I think about our existing social systems as well. So I don't talk about the same stuff, but I feel like that idea of, well, let's think about systems. How do these systems work? What are their consequences? What are the background assumptions that they're resting on? That kind of skill that you get as a logician is actually really helpful for at least some kinds of socially engaged philosophy. So that's one way that I actually try to resolve that kind of tension. If you are really, you know, if you're really into contemporary formal logic, you have learned to think about systems really well. We navigate systems all the time. This is like the world we live in is built on all different kinds of systems. Look at those two. How well are those working?
0: This leads very naturally into one of the questions I've received here from Facebook. Is there something like a feminist logic? You know, how close do those two go together? I know you're an editor of a logic journal. Do you receive, you know, submissions that really are uniting the two as the one thing?
1: So there's not a lot of work in feminist logic, but there is some. This is where I out myself to all the attendees extremely behind on uh, co-editing a volume on feminist philosophy and formal logic. Um, (laughs) Sarah is one of the contributors and so also knows exactly the extent to which Roy and I are behind in our editing process. This is good so feel free, so now um, if you see me on social media later feel free to harass me to uh, uh, get to work on it. But so all the contributors, Sarah included, have written about some way in which we might think about feminist philosophy and formal logic together. Some of the contributors have talked about formal systems that could maybe be used to represent certain interesting phenomena that feminist philosophers will talk about. So for example, we have formal systems to represent all different kinds of things in the world. That's It's one of the things that formal systems will do. It'll model different phenomena. So maybe it can be used to model some phenomena that feminist philosophers will talk about. So that's one thing that can be done. Other, you know, other approaches, we might think like, look, some of the logically minded philosophers from history, you know, to what extent are they good for feminist ends. And so you'd actually do find certain kinds of feminist interpretations of different philosophers sometimes, like there's a series called feminist interpretations of that you will find for different philosophers who you might not have thought were especially feminist friendly, some of whom are very logical in their thinking, and who could potentially be useful for feminist or socially progressive purposes. But in terms of the kinds of feminist logic, probably the main person who's done work on that before was Val Plumwood, who was one of the Australian school of logicians back in the day, who's actually really well known for a really big variety of things. Often I think people who know about Plumwood know her as an eco-feminist. She was also that. So I think I find sometimes people will know her for her um, eco-feminism work and not necessarily know her as a well-known logician. But yeah, so she actually argues in several places that certain systems of non-classical logics that she talks about are better for feminist ends because they reject certain kinds of binaries or certain kinds of dualisms, she calls them, than, than our classical logics. So she actually does think that particular systems of logic are better for feminist ends. And she has tons of stuff on that. But in terms of a system of feminist logic, besides Plumwood, there's not a lot of that. So Yako Hintica and Meryl Hintica, who are a couple, Yako um, is mainly a logician, um, Meryl Hintica was mainly a feminist philosopher, have a co-written paper that talks about that in the context of a kind of modal logic, um, like a modification to a system of modal logic. But those are the main things that come to mind for like actual formal systems of logic that are meant for feminist ends.
0: So do any of you have ideas about how understanding and skill in logic and reasoning, especially non-mathematical reasoning can be taught to the general population or in school? So, especially with the aim of improving public discourse in this era of social media debate, and I know we all have things to say about the way the term "logic" is used online as well.
3: I think that there's a lot of possibility for, for doing this. I'm actually involved in a, as like I'm somehow an advisor for some students who are working on a school age children introduction to logic based on Aristotle. Because one of the things that I think that makes Aristotle more accessible, not the texts of Aristotle himself, you don't necessarily want to give that to children. But the systems that he talks about is that they are kind of much simpler and easier to work with and much more intuitive in their properties than a lot of the like more modern post-Forgean systems, which have these extremely complicated syntaxes and very counterintuitive properties and stuff like that. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, it's actually just what people did in the Middle Ages, what they were doing in Alexandria in the sixth century AD or in the madrasas for centuries. Um, after Avicenna, is to use kind of broadly Aristotelian logics, because they are simple, you can get a lot of mileage out of a very small number of intuitive principles. Um, and so I would say that if people who are interested in that should look at that kind of those kinds of things, and I think that there's quite a lot um, already out there in, the, in that regard.
0: Okay, I'm going to go with another one then from Facebook. Talked a little bit around this. So what is the difference then between logic and mathematics? Uh, It's said that math is static, eternal truth. But logic evolves as it happened to from Aristotle to Boolean to symbolic, etc. If you had to decide what's the difference there, what would you say?
1: Um, I mean, math is not static. Math is absolutely not static. It's completely evolved. So if you just look at ancient Greek geometry to um, contemporary geometry, it's incredibly different. Like it's the discipline has changed. There have been huge debates in mathematics about whether or not to accept things like negative numbers or other kinds of complex numbers. There have been incredibly philosophical debates in mathematics as well as logic. And I don't know that I have a super big investment in in what the difference is between the two. So I don't have super strong feelings on the subject. But sometimes you'll hear people say that logic is somehow more subject neutral than mathematics like that tends to be I think for a lot of people what will differentiate the two is that math is at least supposed to be about something and what those things are like if you think that numbers are real or fictional or whatever you think they are at least about them, whereas logic is supposed to be more about reasoning more generally. So that's, I think, how a lot of people will draw that distinction. But I am sure you can find things where it's absolutely not clear how you should classify something. But then I guess I also wonder, like, why? Why do we care whether something is mathematics or logic or philosophy or computer science or something else? How do some of those divisions actually benefit us is I think where I would sometimes kind of maybe toss that question back.
0: Okay, I've got a yes or no one then, so I want a yes or no from each of you. Do you think rules of logic are necessarily the same in every possible world? No. That's a no from Sarah. No.
3: So I'm going to invoke my Peronian logic card and suspend judgment. <laughs>
0: I would
1: like to know which one of our students is trolling us right now, though.
0: (laughs) So here's a slightly more technical question. What do you think about the cooperation of contemporary logics, especially non-monotonic and cognitive science?
1: Yes, it's fantastic. I think it's great. Develop lots of formal systems. Um, See what they can be used for. That sounds great to me.
2: One thing where logic doesn't work as well as you might want is in connection with how it is that we actually reason. What are the processes that humans use to convince each other of things, to convince themselves of things, to rationally deliberate between alternatives? And no amount of formal logic is going to be any good if we can't hook it up into how humans actually act. Because even those of us who've spent all of our adult lives being trained in or training others in logic, we don't reason via syllogisms every time that we go out and do something. Human reasoning is much more flexible and much more ad hoc. And so anything that brings these two things together is great.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to say that in principle, it's like, why not study their connections? Why not study how people actually reason? That's not, there's no, no problem with that. On the other hand, I do really strongly believe, and, and my feeling about what something that's really important about logic, is that it is something normative. This isn't something we kind of explicitly brought up yet. And this is, again, my like, feeling from learning logic by reading Aristotle and the Stoics, that it's normative for your thinking in some way. That's com- compatible with it being pluralistic in various senses. But I think that um, one thing that, that can happen if you study it kind of from this purely cognitive science, psychological point of view, is that you lose the normativity because it will just turn out that, well, if that's what you're trying to capture, well, then logic won't turn out to have any normative pull because it will just sort of turn out to be whatever we're actually doing. So this isn't to say that you shouldn't study that thing and we couldn't call that logic in some sense. But I think it's also important to realize that you're, we're not just interested in how we actually reason. We're interested in how we should reason and how we should think and that we fail in that regard. And, and sometimes it doesn't matter, right? Sometimes when we're doing, I don't know, going to the grocery store or whatever, failures in logical thinking don't matter so much, but sometimes it really does matter. And so, you know, in, in those cases, uh, it's important to keep in mind that, that distinction and to think of logic as also as a sort of normative craft or science. As
0: the very last question, really quickly, because we only have two minutes left, is there a movement afoot to decolonize logic? And if so, it would be lovely if you could suggest some some reading there or point where it's happening. Sarah, go, I see you're jumping. Yes,
2: I recorded videos for my Introduction to Logic class today on this very topic. Okay. So, we have been studying for the last couple of weeks Indian logic. So we've looked at the works of Vasubandhu and Dignaga and Shankar mentioned mentioned Dharmakirti. So these were people working between the roughly 6th and 10th centuries in the Buddhist tradition. But what I talked about today was why it matters to look at kind of logic outside of the Western tradition, and also some of the pitfalls that you can run into. In particular, there is an excellent paper by Jonathan Ganeri. It's called Indian Logic and the Colonization of Reasoning. And if you want to kind of read about how logic as a discipline is not, it, you know, it you might think that of all of the places where you don't have to worry about colonial influences, logic, you know, you know, this kind of pure reasoning, how could this have anything to do with any of that? And yet what Ganeri says in this chapter motivates very highly that kind of questions of intellectual culture, intellectual reception, being able to trace our cultural heritage back to Aristotle. Ideas of cultural superiority, intellectual superiority, and, you know, you might think, oh, well, you know, the West came up with the syllogism, therefore we are better than others, therefore, you know, all of these really bad arguments that actually were underpinning 19th century British colonialism are threatened and undermined when you look at the Hindu and Buddhist tradition and are like, oh, look, but they actually came up with logic on their own. You know, they didn't need colonialists to come in and teach them how to reason properly. So absolutely, this is a field where you need to be looking outside of the narrow Western approach to logic. Ask, what is logic? What gets to count as logic? Who gets to decide? Who gets to count as a logician who gets to decide that so this this is a big topic that I've been talking quite a bit to my students in the last couple of weeks and I'm so glad somebody asked about it
0: yeah and it seems like a great note to close on unfortunately we have to end here and I'm so sorry I didn't get to more questions there were absolutely loads thank you so much to our speakers for coming and for talking to us and thank you so much to everyone who came and listened and asked questions and good night